our next major event, the conquest. The conquest. The second implication is throughout we're going to see God's grace and God's judgment again. We saw God's grace and God's judgment when? First, God's grace and judgment. What was the first instance? At the fall. Very good. At the fall. Yeah. Grace in that God provides a way of salvation. Judgment in that God's dealing with sin. And then secondly, Linda got the second one, the flood, where there's grace and judgment there. Grace in that God saves a family. Judgment in that he judged the whole world and destroyed that whole world. We saw God's grace and judgment. Where else? Third major event. Exodus. Yeah, he judged whom? Egyptians. And by grace, he redeemed the children of Israel out of bondage. We're going to see grace and judgment again in the conquest. Kind of a recurring theme. So let's take a look at God's grace. And what I'm emphasizing on this slide is Israel's failure. In other words, Israel doesn't deserve the land whatsoever. God could have said, sorry, no land. You guys have violated the Mosaic Covenant. But there's grace. Why? Because God also specified it in the Abrahamic Covenant. So no matter what Israel does, they will be in the land, and eventually they will be there in the fullest sense because of the Abrahamic Covenant. But they have no claims to it because from the very beginning they violated the covenant. And where did we see the first violation of the covenant? We saw that when we looked at the law and what chapter, do you remember what chapter that was? The golden calf. Yeah, the golden calf. So the covenant was broken right at Sinai itself and that's Exodus 32, 32 and 33. In fact, at that point, God even told Moses, I'm going to destroy them. I'll start, start over with you, Moses. And I'll build a nation through you, Moses. And God argues and talks, you know, we have anthropomorphic discussion there where God is pictured like a man and Moses and him interact. And and God seemingly, it seems like, changes his mind. But that's all anthropomorphism. So, from the very beginning, even before the law is completely given, they're already breaking the law. Secondly, We didn't read these passages, but in the book of Numbers, we have at Kadesh Barnea the report of the 12 spies that went into the land. Remember that story? Uh, What is it? Numbers 13 and 14, I believe, where Joshua and Caleb say, let's take the land. It's It's a great land. There's opposition there, but we are trusting that God's going to do to the Canaanites what he did to the Egyptians. He's going to display his power. But the ten spies says, we're like grasshoppers. You know, we're helpless. We're not going to be able to take the land. Well, that's true too. But what they are doing is they are looking at the, the, the situation from unbelief. Joshua and Caleb are looking at it from the perspective of faith that God is going to give them victory. The ten spies are looking at it from the perspective, humanly speaking, there's no way we can conquer these people. And that was true as well. But it's unbelief and discounting that God has already promised that he's going to give them the victory. So, because of that unbelief, God sends them into the wilderness for 38 more years, or the complete period of time is 40 years in the wilderness. 
So we have unbelief at Kadesh Barnea, where that entire generation was excluded from entering the land. But God's grace is that the next generation, God is going to work through them and bring that second generation into the land. That's grace. God didn't have to do that. So let's look at some of these narratives leading up to the conquest. So I'm going to give you some of the background leading up to the conquest. And let's look these up. Uh, Loretta, you want to start us off? Look at chapter 20. And why don't, uh, Linda, you look up that same. It's going to be chapter 20 as well. Numbers. And Mark, look up Numbers 21. Randy, I'll have you look up 36. Numbers. All of these are in numbers. Loretta, you got 17? Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass field or through the vineyard. We will not even drink water from the well. We will go along the king's highway and not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. Okay, what's described there is they are stopped by the Edomites. This is the area of Edom. And basically they're promising, you know, we're not going to damage your land. We're not going to even drink the water. We're, we're just, we just want permission to pass through. And the Edomites deny them the permission. Now read verse 20. And on the map, the children of Israel are at this point, and it refers to the king's highway, which would have gone through Edom, and they're progressing north. And they're going to move to just outside the land in this area up here on the map. And then we're going to see the events where they enter the land in the book of Joshua. But in Numbers, we kind of have the, the setting of the stage there. Read verse 20. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with heavy force, with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Okay, so they are refused, so they're going to have to bypass Edom. Now, notice 21-24, we have another situation going on here. Then Israel struck him with the edges, took possession of his land from the Arnon and Okay, he's talking about the Moabite king here, the Moabites. So they enter here, and they have a conflict with the Moabites, and it's from the Arnon to the what? Jabbok, so it's it's from this point to a point off the map up here. And this is the area in which they're traveling now. And it's through Moab. I'm just kind of giving some of the background as they're moving through this, this area. I'm going to show you photographs of this King's Highway. I'm going to show you photographs of this whole area in a moment. Let's just read the passages, and then I'll give you the photographs. The next passage, you want to read 21-1 there, Mark? Or 22-1, rather. The sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond Jordan. Okay, this area here, beyond Jericho, in other words, it's on the east side of the river of the Jordan. Go ahead. Now, Moab, the son of Zephyr, Zephyr, saw all the, that Israel had done to the Ammonites, Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people. For they were numerous, and Moab was a... It was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, 
Now this horde will lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. Balak, son of Zippor, was king of Moab at the time. Okay, so they're having a conflict with the Moabites, and they're in the Moabite territory, and if you read the context, you'll see that they'll have some dealings with them there. 36.13, you want to read that one, Randy? These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses unto the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. Okay, so that kind of sets the setting. This is the end of the book of Numbers that uh, Randy read. So this is where they're at in the plains of Moab. So just to give you a visual picture of what it looks like, this is the King's Highway in that area there. And even later on, the Romans built a road on that same King's Highway, that ancient highway that existed all the way in, in the time of Joshua. So the Romans built a road right on the same area, and there's archaeological remains of it. So this is on the east side of that Rift Valley, the Jordan Valley. Now, this is a very lush picture. In general, that area is quite a bit more desolate, but in this valley, you have some lushness there. This is the fields of Moab. This is south of the Arnon. And let me show you the Arnon again. Here's the Arnon River. So in this area here is that green area. I'm going to show you some sites up here. In fact, I'm going to show you a site of that city right there, or at least... Uh, an archaeological site there. So there's the fields of Moab. So they progressed in that area. This is more what it looks like. It's more of a rugged area. This is that Arnon River. It's a view from the southwest. So the Arnon would come through this area in here, flow here, and eventually flow into the Dead Sea. So again, I'm going to show you this little site here. Diban, Iron Age, foundation of a Moabite temple. This would date back. Well, actually, this is later. This is a later, the Iron Age would be a later period of time. But the same location. So that gives you a feel for the, the preparations for war as they are journeying. And then in chapter 6 through 12, we actually have the campaigns that the children of Israel entered into to conquer the land. So there are actually three phases in the conquest of the land, three phases. There's going to be a central phase that's going to begin with the crossing of the Jordan River. So here's Moab, here's the Arnon. So I showed you a shot of that river valley there. I showed you the plains here, and I showed you some shots in this area here. Here's Dibon right there. And they're going to progress and end up over here. Remember that other river that was noted that you read, Linda, the Jabbok? Here it is on this map here. So it's from the Jabbok to the Arnon. This is the area that the children of Israel. And you remember there's a large group of them, perhaps in the millions. And they're now camped out on this side of the, the river. And the first place that they're going to conquer is Jericho. So there's going to be a central campaign. First Jericho, and then they're going to conquer Ai. They're going to have a problem at Ai because they're disobedient, but eventually they will take Ai. And what they're doing is they're, this is kind of militarily strategic, in that you take the central part, so you divide the country, 
And if you can divide it, now once you've taken the central part, now you can take the remaining parts. So they're going to take AI, they're going to go to Gibeon, and there's going to be an incident at Gibeon as well. So they're basically concentrating in the early chapters there, this central part, and then I'll show you they'll progress to the south, and then they'll progress to the north later on. So there's three a three-phase campaign that we have here. And there's Jericho. So they're camped over here, and they're going to have a miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, and then they're going to have an unusual way of conquering Jericho. And I'll comment on that when we get there in a moment here. Visually, just so you can see what it looks like, this mound here is the archaeological site of ancient Jericho. This is Old Testament Jericho. Now, when it speaks of the, of the city of Jericho in the New Testament, it's actually a different site. And there's another archaeological site here. This is New Testament Jericho. And obviously everything around this, this is uh, present-day Jericho, if you visited Israel. But there's a small area here that would have been the Old Testament site of Jericho. Now let's take a look. In fact, let's backtrack. Uh, let's take a look at Joshua chapter 1 and get more of the context of the conquest. I gave you some visuals, first of all. Everybody turn to Joshua chapter 1. I want to read uh, verse 1, first of all. Uh, Joshua 1.1. 1, 1. kind of gives us the setting of the whole book. Loretta, 1.1. 1, 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Okay, just as he spoke to Moses, what's he reminding of? Not just the promise, but it would include the the covenant as well. Mosaic covenant. Passed on to the next generation. Joshua now is going to be the focus, and he's to take the land. So chapter 1 kind of gives us the setting, and it's a transition to Joshua. And now let's look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. You want to do that one? Mark 2, 1, and Randy do 4, 13. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and lodged them. Okay. So they're preparing to go into the land. First they send spies. The spies go to this harlot, which is interesting. And there's some implications we can draw from it. We'll talk about that later. But this would have been the site there. And by the way, her house is in the wall, which archaeologically is confirmed by the way that they built walls to a city. You want to read 413. Well, 40,000 prepared for before the Lord battle. Two Okay. So 40,000 Israelites prepare for war. Gives us kind of the setting here. Six, one, and two, ready, you want to do that. When Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel, no one went out and no one came in. 
the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho unto your hand with, it, with its king and rebellion warriors. Okay, so they're about to conquer Jericho. Now, in the conquering of Jericho, God instructs them to do something that militarily doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And what he's doing here is demonstrating is that the battle is going to be his. It's not going to be by military might. It's not going to be by human strategy. It's not going to be by military maneuvers. It's going to be God doing it himself. It's going to be purely miraculous. Now, the text, I don't have it up there on a slide, but it gives us insight into what is actually happening in the conquest of Jericho. Because what the children of Israel are to do is they are just to go around the city seven days and basically blow the trumpets, and then on the seventh day they're going to go around seven times and then blow the trumpets and shout. What kind of a military strategy is that? Kooky, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't tell them fire arrows. He doesn't tell them ram the gates. He doesn't tell them mount on horse. He doesn't tell them anything militarily. It's a strategy to show the children of Israel that God is the one that's going to do it. Now, I think we have insight to backtrack. And, Mark, why don't you begin reading chapter 5 and read 13 through 15? Because that is a key. This precedes the battle. And this gives you the key as to how the walls fall. Now, scholars say, well, there must have been an earthquake such that the walls were shaken. There must, you know, maybe the shouting just acoustically in combination with an earthquake caused the walls to crumble. What's happening here, I think, is, well, read it and then I'll comment on what I think took place there. 513. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Okay, so Joshua encounters what he thinks is a man. And he's asking him, Okay, we're in this military conflict. Are you on our side or are you on the Canaanite side? Keep reading. He said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What is my Lord to say to his servant? Okay, what's going on there? Who is this man? Quote, unquote. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Now some theologians, and I kind of agree with them, where you see the angel of the Lord, it's a pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. But that's a whole other discussion. The point being is this is an angelic creature. And not only is an, he an angelic creature, but what does he have with him? An angelic army, a whole host. You see that? Read the last verse there. Captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua did so. Okay. And then that moves us into the narrative. And if you read the following narrative, now we have the incident that I just described in terms of the blowing of the trumpets and the going around of the city. And then on the seventh day and the seventh time around, the shouting. Wasn't an earthquake. It wasn't uh, some unusual physical phenomenon. I think what 
destroyed the walls of Jericho was this angelic army of creatures that nobody was able to see. But the point being, it's supernatural. God did it. And what he's demonstrating, the children of Israel, from the very first battle, if you just do what I tell you to do, no matter how ridiculous it may seem, just go around the city shouting and tooting your horns, and I'm going to basically affect the battle. You see that? So that's what's going on there. And we continue to see not only God dealing here, but we also see God's grace. We saw, we mentioned the covenant breaking at Sinai itself. We saw the unbelief at Kadesh Barnea. And now in the defeat at Ai, because of disobedience there, God could have said, that's it. I'm going to discontinue this conquest. You guys are on your own. And just to give the background there, let's read chapter 7, 1 through 5. You want to alternate back and forth there? You want to do 7 there, Randy? Of the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmine, the son of Zabdi, the son of Sarah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Okay. And what happened there, that's probably enough to read there. It's referring back, God told them, don't take the spoils, and he was very particular about it, and Achan, one of the children of Israel, violated that, went against it, and he kind of did it secretly and hid it in his tent, and now the Lord is confronting Israel on it, and basically he has judged himself, Achan and his family. You want to read 8.1 there, because it's going to describe this area. And basically, the ancient site, it would be this area in here. That would be AI, just to give you a, a visual. Uh, probably the best site is what's described as Kirbet el Makatir. And the Wadi Shaban is this Wadi here. It's described in these passages. So read 8.1, Mark. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people who are with you and arise. Go up to AI. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai. Okay, now this is after that sin was dealt with, and now God is going to give it into their hand. Read also Mark 10 through 13. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people, and he went up with the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. Then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai. He took about 5,000 men. And this is that valley. This is the Wadi Sheban. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. Now this is a military strategy. This is different from Jericho. So God is going to allow them to have a part in the conquest of Ai. Jericho, he did it. Here he's giving them a part. Uh, this is looking south, I believe. Looking south. 18 through 19, Randy, you want to do those two? And the Lord said unto Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that he had in his hand toward the city. And the ambush arose quickly out of their place. And they ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand. And they entered into the city and took it and hasted and set the city fire. Okay. And what they did, and God instructed them to do this, he said, take a portion of the army, 
stretch out your hand, and this is in the vision of the, this is really a military outpost, so it's the soldiers that are at AI. And what happened before is, in disobedience, they tried to take the city, and the uh, soldiers at AI just basically routed them. So he's basically repeating what they did before, and now Joshua is in a visible place, probably somewhere like here, is drawing them out, and then they are going to flee like they did the first time. And then there's going to be another part of the army that's hidden in that valley there. And once they come out of the city, they are going to come out and basically take the city and then have the soldiers basically trapped between Joshua's portion and the army. So that's kind of the strategy there. So this little valley plays a part in that. And these are just some more photographs of the same site, the, the site over here. And here's that valley. You can see where it, you would be easily, you could hide several people in there and not be seen from from AI. So that's the Wadi Sheban from the east. Another shot. So it's kind of a sharp valley. Remember I told you in Israel, the mountains are more kind of like this. They're rounded on the top and then they kind of come down like that as opposed to the kinds of mountains that we have here in Albuquerque where we have like a Sandia Crest, and then you have something like that. And oftentimes cities would be built on the top. And, and by the way, AI is on the top on a mound like that. So you have the army in that Wadi Sheban. By the way, uh, in Hebrew, a Wadi is like an arroyo here in New Mexico. Most of the time it's dry, but when you have a, a rainstorm, it fills up with water. There's just another shot looking south. Okay, here's the victory pattern. And you see this consistent in Joshua. If you want a victory pattern, this is what you have to do. Yahweh said, like in 3.7, and he gives detailed instructions. That's the first part. The second part of the victory pattern is Joshua did, and he does exactly what Yahweh said. That's like uh, chapter 3, verses 9 and following. If they don't do what Yahweh said, then they fail. If they do what Yahweh said, then they're successful. And that's true today as well. When we do what God says, we can expect that God blesses. If we go against what God says, we can expect consequences. Then the third stage, after Joshua did, then the people did. So it involves the leaders and it involves the people. 3.14 is the example there. That's the victory pattern. God giving the instructions for stage, Joshua following through on the instructions, and then the people following through along with Joshua. And in the conquest, and by the way, this is the archaeological site, a Neolithic tower uncovered, Neolithic, this is before Abraham, actually. Jericho is considered probably the oldest continuously occupied city in the world. So it goes way back, way back. So there's lots of archaeology that's been done at Jericho. So the main thing in the conquest, there's several things. But number one, what God is doing, and we'll talk some more about this when we talk about the apologetic part. God is judging the Canaanites. God is judging the Canaanites. That is the main feature of what God is doing here. Judging... Canaanites. 
Another thing that God is doing is he's fulfilling for Israel what he's promised. And not only promised, but covenanted with Israel. So it's a judgment and it's grace. It's a judgment of Canaanites and it's fulfillment for Israel of things he promised and it's by grace. Thirdly, it's a display of God's faithfulness because he keeps his covenants. Keeps his covenants. That's a summary of what God is doing. And we looked at some of the passages dealing with the first phase. We looked at Jericho and we kind of briefly looked at Ai. We won't look at Gibeon, but Basically, they are taking this central portion of the land of the Canaanites. And in the next phase, they're going to begin the southern campaign. So this is the second phase. And let me show you some photographs of Lachish. And we'll look at a couple of passages. Or Lachish. Some scholars pronounce it Lachish. And let's look up. Uh, you got 10.5, Mark. And why don't you do 31-32 as well. This is the mound, and most of the cities are built on a mound or a, a hill. This is the archaeological site there. I'm going to show you some photographs. This is the central temple, and the city would have been in this area, and there would have been a wall around the city. This is the entrance to the city right here, so there would have been a major gate right here. Some of the people would have lived outside of the city and they would have cultivated the area around it to produce the food. And if there was a military issue or a campaign, all the people that lived in this area would run up into the city, they'd close the gate, and they would defend themselves. This is pretty typical of what went on. These are present-day vineyards. In other words, they still cultivate the land here. Here's another vineyard here, one here, a couple here. So read 10.5. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. See Lachish there? Keep reading. Gathered together and went up. They, with all their armies, camped by Gideon and fought against it. Okay, skip to 31 and 32. So they're, they're defending the land, and it includes the, the king of Lachish. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish. There you go. And they camped by it and fought against it. The Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel, and he captured it on the second day, and struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he, he had done to Libna. Okay. And if you read the context, it's also according to how how God instructed them. So there's a shot of Lachish, and here's just some more shots from different angles from the northwest. Here's that gate, the city, the entrance of the city gate here. There's that temple, and you can see the area around uh, well cultivated even today. And there would have been at the top uh, a wall that would have been the protective wall around Lachish. And this is the approach. In other words, this is that sh this shot is looking in this direction, up the hill in this area right here. The approach road to the gate, and actually the uphill. The gate would be off the slide in this direction here. And there's an aerial shot of the palace or the remains of it, at the top. And by the way, I visited Latish. Most of these are not my photographs, though. So. Quite impressive sight. Southeast corner of the palace, up close. 
So all this took place. Long history. So that's the southern campaign, Lachish. Now next, the third phase is up in the north, and a important stronghold is Hatzor. In fact, Hatzor kind of protected the Canaanites from the north. Lachish protected the Canaanites from the south. So it was kind of a southern stronghold. So the children of Israel conquering the central, then the south stronghold, and now they're going to take the north. And essentially they're taking the land. And there's Hatzor from the southeast. That would be this mound over here. You want to do 11, 10 through 13. And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king there with the sword. For Hazor and the all those kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were there at the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them. There was not any left to breathe. Okay, utterly destroying them. And that was God's command. We wouldn't come back to that when we get to the apologetic portion. Again, we have a typical mound. Typical mound. There would have been a wall around the outer edge of the top here. There would have been people that would have cultivated all this area out here. And it's probably very similar to what it was back in that time. So if you go to Israel, you can see pretty much the same geography, if you will. And people would have in that time would have lived in these areas out here, cultivated the land, and again, when an invading force would come, they would run inside the city wall for the protection. Another shot, almost this shot is from this direction over here, this next one right there, and archaeological excavation here, and there's been some in this area as well. Hot sore. Another angle, another shot, and... These are not large areas, and usually on the mounds you have the the residence of the king or the city king. You'd have also uh, the main temples, uh, main public buildings, that sort of thing. These are just archaeological excavations of some of that portion there. This is a well-preserved foundation of a gate, and this is pretty typical of ancient gates of that period. They would be built with these chambers so that uh, if this is the entrance here, there would be soldiers that would be stationed in here. There would also be a, a wooden gate, but if they broke that down, you'd have soldiers in all of these chambers here to basically kill the people as they came through. And if enough soldiers got through, then you'd get to the end here where you'd continue the the process there, and hopefully you could stop the invading army. But this is a typical gate, and here's a standing stone that would date back to the Canaanite period. Iron Age water system. Usually on these mounds, they would have a cistern that would capture all the water that would fall in rainfall, and then you would use that water for drinking and other, other purposes as well. Okay, so that's the conquest in the three phases, central, southern, northern, and then the rest of the book of Joshua, chapter 13 through 24, we have the distributing of the land of the 12 tribes. We won't look at that in very much detail, other than look at this map, and when the children of Israel occupied the land, Before they even crossed, God gave them a part of the land on the east side, gave to Reuben this portion, 
and Gad, this portion, and Manasseh, this portion. So this is all east of the Jordan River. And then once they conquered the west part on the west side of the Jordan River, this is the distribution of the tribes. And the reading of those chapters is pretty laborious because it basically gives you the, the details of of the boundaries. And some of those cities, we don't even know where they're at. So it's kind of difficult reading. But that detail also tells you God is dealing legally. In other words, we're dealing with land and boundaries that are part of what God promised to the 12 tribes, and he specifies them in the book of Joshua. So we've looked at the Moses chronology. We saw Moses born, Moses in Midian. We saw the Exodus, two first phases of Moses' life. We have the conquest begins after the death of Moses, and in our timeline we have 1405. So that's 40 years after the Exodus. Remember, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And this period of time of the book of Joshua is not a long period of time, from about 1405 to 1398, only about a seven-year period of conquest. So it begins, now this is the major portion where now they're occupying the land. The conquest is not complete, because God's intent is that they wipe out the Canaanites, but they failed in that part. They were successful in taking the land, but they were not successful in wiping out the Canaanites in the land. So what do we have in a nation? It requires that you have a common people, that's the people of Israel. It includes a common constitution, we saw that, that's the law, the Mosaic law. It also involves the land, common land. And now with Joshua, now they are a full-fledged nation, and it includes the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan. We could see the conquest, another implication here. The conquest gives us a preview of final judgment. This is similar to what I mentioned in terms of the Exodus, or the plagues at least. Remember I said the plagues are a foretaste of what God is going to do during the Great Tribulation? Well, the judgment of the Canaanites is a preview of the final judgment of all of the unbelievers. That's what God is doing. He's judging a particular people, the Canaanite people. So, well, they have reached, they have reached the outworking of the full effects of sin. They sacrificed children to gods. They were very cruel to their enemies. They were very idolatrous. They were sexually totally corrupt. So when you view the incident of the, the conquest, think of it like a judgment. Think of it like the Genesis flood where God wiped out all of those people. They died just as dead as what God intended the Canaanites to be. The only difference between the Genesis flood is that God used water to do the judgment. And what God instructed the children of Israel to do was to do the same thing. They were going to be the instruments of judgment. God intended to use them. But it's judgment all the same. And it's a picture. It's bloody. 
But the final judgment is going to be even more so, more bloody. So final judgment, we have the ultimate separation of evil. And what we have in uh, the book of Joshua and what God is dealing with the Canaanites, he is attempting to remove the evil of the Canaanites from the Israelites, from the land. Now, because they failed, now they're going to be plagued with the Canaanites in their later history. Secondly, we see in the Great Tribulation kind of hints of, of God dealing, beginning with the end times, dealing with separating evil out. And these are just examples. And rather than read these, just go ahead and jot them down. Revelation 6, 8. And in your reading of that, see if it doesn't remind you of something of what God is doing with the Canaanites. Except here, he's doing it worldwide. Also read 6, 8. I believe that passage talks about the death of a quarter of humanity during the Great Tribulation. Then in chapter 9, verse 15, we have the death of another, in addition, a third of humanity. Lots of death, lots of bloodshed. And in verse 18, I think you have that number there as well, 918. And then in 14, 9 through 11, a bloody mess, bloody judgment during the Great Tribulation, reminding you of what God is doing amongst the Canaanites. So the Tribulation judgments reflect. And we have the final judgment of Babylon in chapters 18, 8 through 10, and 19 specifically, and actually 17, chapter 17 through 18, final judgment of Babylon. And that is bloody. Armageddon, that is a bloody battle. And you see the emphasis of that bloodiness in chapters 14, 19 through 20, and then the end of it in chapter 19, verses 17 through 21, Armageddon. So if you think the killing of the Canaanites is a bloody mess, it is, but it's judgment. But it's only a picture of what an even more bloody dealing with judgment at the end of the age. So Canaan is nothing more than a judgment like what will take place in the future. The only difference is God is using Israel as his instrument. That's the only difference. So that's the book of Joshua. And what we will do is go ahead and stop at that point and we'll pick up and look at related events related to the conquest and actually the failure to complete the conquest. That's the book of Judges. Okay, so we'll pick up there next time. Failure of the nation. Conquest dealing primarily with the book of Joshua, but we want to look at the book of Judges as well. The book of Judges is somewhat of a transition from somewhat of a high point to the conquest of the land as described in Joshua and the distributing of the land. And you see success after success after success, few failures in between, but essentially the conquest of the land is very, very positive because there's obedience. And the contrast with the obedience is the book of Judges, and we want to conclude the conquest by looking at it, and it'll transition us and show us. In fact, the book somewhat emphasizes that during this time there was no king, so it transitions to the period of time 
dealing with the kings, the kings of Israel. We've been looking at the emergence of Israel, the emergence as a nation. So we first have the formation of the nation, and that's given to us in Exodus and Numbers. My outline is more of the historical outline, and you can fit in some of the other books of the Bible in relation to this historical outline. So B, the next part of the emergence of Israel, is possession of the land. That's the book of Joshua, and that's what we looked at. We saw the conquest of the land, first 12 chapters, distribution of the land, the last 12 chapters, 13 through 24. And we want to continue by looking at the failure of the nation. So you might see success in Joshua and failure in the book of Judges. And except for the destruction of Israel, the book of Judges is the darkest period of Israel's history. So it would be the second darkest after captivity, exile, and all those negative aspects at the end of Israel's history, at the end of the Old Testament time. So the first part, which let's take a real quick look at, the failure of the nation is mainly the failure to take the land totally in the way that God prescribed. And what he commanded the children of Israel to do is to essentially not only defeat the Canaanites, but to totally destroy them. And we'll look at that also in the apologetic part because that's one of the main accusations that the unbeliever and the skeptic raises concerning the Bible. The Bible does, in fact, they would say, teach genocide. And how can a God that you say is a loving God permit genocide? And they will look at the passages we'll look at. And in the apologetic, I want to give you the answer to that. I gave you some hints of that last time. So let's take a look at the failure to take the land. And let's look up some passages to do that. And let's start some reading. And why don't we start with you, Connie, in Judges chapter 1. Start off by reading verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? Keep reading. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Okay. I have given the land into their hands. God is going to fulfill what he has promised, what he has committed. He commanded the children of Israel to conquer the Canaanites, but in reality he would give them the victory. He would be the one that would effect the victory. So this is how the book begins. But notice, beginning in verse 21... Let's take a look at it. Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Okay, so they did not drive out the Jebusites, who were a Canaanite people. Mackenzie, look at, read verse 22, and then skip down and read verse 27. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord is with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was for them Okay, the main thing I want you to notice is verse 22, the Lord was with them. In other words, had they followed through, he would have done what he had promised. But, notice verse 27, you want to read it, Mackenzie? 
Vanessa did not care about the inhabitants of that she is villages Okay, the main part, skip down to the end there, and its villages. So, so the Canaanites. So the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Okay, so the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. God wanted them wiped out. Colin, you want to read twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Um, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced slavery, but did not drive them out completely. Did not drive them out completely. See the refrain over and over? 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Okay. And if you keep reading through the chapter, verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kibron. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. You get the idea here? Keep going down. Dan as well. The Amorites persisted in living in Mount Heres, etc. Let's skip down to chapter 2, Mark. You want to read three verses there. Now the angel of the Lord came up to Gilgal and mocking. And he said, Bokim. Bokim. This is very, this is a turning point. This is a very important passage. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Okay. Notice that. I will never break my covenant. God is faithful. He will keep the part of the covenant that he is committed to. Keep reading. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you shall, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I said, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And that's basically the history of the book of Judges, and actually the beginning of the book of First Samuel as well. So God makes it very clear they have not obeyed, and as a result, they are going to suffer the consequences. Remember the Palestinian covenant and the Mosaic covenant, which is probably in view in this passage. Basically, if they're obedient, they will have success. They will have victory. They will drive out their enemies. If they don't obey, God keep his part, and these enemies are militarily stronger than the Israelites. Let's get down to... Verse 6. Do you want to read that one, Linda? Uh, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance and possessed the land. Keep reading. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua would see all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Okay, so they remembered the miraculous work that God did But notice, it's temporary. It's only as long as Joshua was there, that generation. Read verse 8. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his parents, in Timolach, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Okay, Randy, do you want to read verse 10 loudly? And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which were not the Lord, 
nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. That's key. They knew not the Lord. That generation failed to communicate the message of Yahweh and what Yahweh had done and who Yahweh is. And they didn't remember what Yahweh had done for them. And now we have an outline. You can, to- you can outline the book basically by verses 11 through 19. Loretta, do you want to read 11, and t- 11 through 13? Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Is that correct, Baals? Baals. Oh, yeah, two A's. Baals. And actually there's a letter between the A's, but it's unpronounceable. Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God, on their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ash, Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth. Yeah, those are female gods, male and female gods. These are the main gods of the Canaanites. That is why God wanted them to drive the Canaanites out and to destroy them because the Canaanites would influence them and this is what happened. Because they did not drive them out, now they're susceptible to the gods of the Canaanites, they're idolatrous. They're violating the first commandment that God issues. Violating the commandment and the covenant. Want to read 14, Connie? 14 and 15. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Okay. So, the first stage is basically they, they serve false gods, rejecting the true God. Secondly, God basically disciplines them, allows plunderers who plundered them, and and then the third stage, 16 and 17, Mackenzie. The Lord raised up judges, and saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they poured after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of Okay, so stage one, basically rejecting the one true God. God allows their enemies basically to plunder them and to oppress them. This is what you'll see over and over and over in the book of Judges. Cycles, in fact, there'll be cycles of apostasy from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 16, verse 31. And then the fourth stage, verses 18 and 19, Holland. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by the thought, was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Okay, that's the pattern that will follow in the next chapters. And basically, it, it even indicates that they'll be even worse. It'll, it'll be a downward spiral, such that by the end of the period of the Judges, the children of Israel are no different than the Canaanites. As evil, as corrupt, 
as immoral, as godless, as polytheistic as the Canaanites. The darkest period of Israel's history, except for when they are destroyed and taken into captivity. So that's kind of a summary of the book. Let's read on, beginning in chapter 3, Mark, verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the war came, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Those who had not experienced the former. And then in verse 3 he gives us a list of the nations. So, basically... That's a summary of the next chapters. And then in chapter 17 through 21 is the consequences of that period. And the consequences, as I've summarized basically, as the most corrupt period of Israel's history. So what this tells us is during the period of the judges, it exposes certain needs that the nation lacks, some lacks within the nation. And remember, we started by looking, God is dealing with Israel under grace in spite of Israel's failure, in spite of breaking the covenant at Sinai by making the golden calf in the middle of God giving the the law. We saw the unbelief at Kadesh Barnea, which doomed that first generation to die in the wilderness, but yet God's going to deal with the nation because of the Abrahamic covenant. Thirdly, we saw even during the conquest, they were defeated at Ai because they didn't follow God's instructions. We looked at that passage, and we just read in the book of Judges the failure at Bochim, that was the one that Mark read, where basically God says, I'm going to let the oppressors plunder the children of Israel. And for about the next 300 years, we have this downward spiral of the nation of Israel. So if we summarize this failure, gathering all of the passages of the book of Judges, we see that there's a failure of every tribe. We almost we, we could have read every one of the, the tribes in chapter 1, where he goes over, they didn't wipe out the, the Canaanites. So every tribe is guilty. And these these enemies are primarily surrounding and local enemies. They're Canaanites, essentially, and peoples around the land of Canaan. Thirdly, we see these cycles of sin that we've talked about throughout the Old Testament, and we will continue to see throughout the rest of the Bible, actually. And we we looked at those in chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. I've got them summarized in this slide. We saw that Israel falls into... Idolatry, so we see the evil of Israel, verses 11 and 12, we read those. We read 14 through 15, God's wrath, where he allows the oppressor nations to plunder the Israelites. We saw the raising up of judges, God raises up judges, that's grace, to deliver them after they cry out, 16 and 17, we read those. And we saw the fourth stage in the book of Joshua, 18 and 19, deliverance of the Lord. And then you see the cycle repeat itself over and over, and each cycle almost seems to be worse than the prior cycle. Mark, you want to do it? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunities to learn your revelations, the foundations, the critical part of understanding of what you've written in the Word. We thank you. 
your grace which provides our salvation in Jesus our filling of the spirit the power to understand these things continue to reveal to us those things we can use in the daily walk as a vassal ask these things in Christ Amen